Panda acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we work and live. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We celebrate the stories, culture and traditions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders of all communities who also work and live on this land. Today's episode was produced on the lands of the Ghana, Gadigal, Awabakal and Waramai peoples and the Jagara, Yagara and Ugarapul peoples. I just remember this particular day. I'd done another feed and I'd done another pump and I'd put him down for a sleep and I just said to my husband, I am, I can't do this. This is not what I thought it was going to be. This is, uh, can we just take him back to the hospital? Like, I'm not cut out for this. This is just so much harder. And he sort of tried to reassure me, but he kind of said the same thing. He's like, yep. Like, this is not good. This is not what I thought as well. And we just thought, oh, my God, like, what have we got ourselves into? This is just... If we can just take him back to the hospital, then, you know, we can just pretend it never happened. Emma loves her boys with her whole heart, and there's nothing she wouldn't do to protect them. But there are days when, more than anything, she just wants her old life back. Some days it's hard to imagine that there was a time when all she wanted was this, a busy house full of kids. And you know what? That's actually a really common feeling. You can feel ambivalent. You can even feel regret. And that's okay. I'm Gia, and this is Survive and Thrive, a podcast from Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. You probably know them as Panda. Parenting is so much more than the practical, everyday tasks we all strive to perfect. It's all the social pressures, what the perfect parent looks like beamed to us through social media, on the news. It's all unrealistic. Sociologist Dr Sophie Brock has spent years studying how our concept of parenthood is shaped by the world around us. You'll hear from her a little later in this episode. But for Emma, who spent a lifetime daydreaming about becoming a mum, when the moment finally arrived, she had decades of preconceived ideas to unpack. I didn't know what else I wanted to do in my life, but I wanted to be a mum. Did you have some some idea of what it might be like to be a parent? Um, you know, I knew how to change a nappy when I was about 12, and I just thought, all right, well, you know, I've got that nailed down, and I know how to, you know, heat up a bottle and feed a baby and all that sort of stuff, and I guess I thought it was going to be fine because I knew what I was doing. Um, you know, I didn't really consider just how... Um, difficult it was going to be. I kind of just thought, oh, well, you know, this will be really easy because I know what I'm doing and I've had all this experience and, you know, kids have really come easy to me. We'll go back to what it was actually like in a little while, but I might just start off first, um, if you don't mind telling me a little bit about your journey to conceiving, because I know that was a bit of a roller coaster for you. Sure. Um, so my husband and I, um, by the point that we actually had been together since we were 18. And um, when we did start trying to conceive, um, you know, I, I kind of had this idea that, all right, well, it might be okay, you know, it'll be easy and it'll happen. And the months kept rolling on and, you know, it was not happening and we were getting quite discouraged. And, you know, I kept going back and forth to this doctor and she said, oh, we'll, you know, get to the 12-month mark and then we'll start doing some more investigations. So we continued on. I did a lot more testing. We actually ended up moving to a different doctor who 
did a lot more investigation and by this point I think it had been two years and I kind of had gotten to the point of thinking, all right, well, this is either never going to happen or we're going to have to go down the road of fertility treatment. Before we tried anything else, she sent me in for a laparoscopy because she said, well, we want to just sort of start with a baseline of what's going on with you potentially, see if there's any issues and then we can look into doing IVF. So we went in for... I went in for a laparoscopy um, and the following month I was pregnant, which was a big shock and a big surprise. We just weren't even considering that this was going to happen. Gosh, how was that for you then? How would, Can you describe that moment when you found out that you'd conceived naturally? I remember when I was at work, um, you know, we'd be planning for certain things with dates and writing things in my diary and I always thought, oh, maybe by this point, you know, when this is happening, I'll be pregnant. And it just kind of kept rolling on and on and on and it just got so sort of discouraged, I just got so discouraged that I just kind of thought, oh, this is just, it's never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. So it was a massive shock for it to come to fruition. And, and my husband, I think he just, he didn't know what to do. He, he just paced up and down the house kind of going, oh my God, like we were so shocked. Wow. That's it. something you've wanted for so long, but when it actually happens, you're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And we didn't sort of even know what to do next. And I think that's, looking back now, it's almost when the fear started for both of us. Um, this pregnancy was very, very rough. It was nothing like I had expected. You just think about having that big bump growing and that was all I was excited about. How did you feel when your first son was born? Uh was bizarre. Um, I think I had spent so much time focusing on the pregnancy and being well and knowing that he was going to be okay. We also didn't not we didn't actually find out whether we were having a boy or a girl. I think at one point it was about that sort of level of surprise, but I think on the other hand it was also that I didn't want to invest too much into it just in case something went wrong. Thankfully, Emma's first son arrived safely, but she ended up with a fourth-degree tear. She needed emergency surgery, and her husband was left with their newborn for hours until she was wheeled back into their room the next morning. And I remember already lying when I was in recovery, just looking at the clock and waiting, waiting, waiting to get back to him and thinking, I can't believe I'm a mum and I don't feel like it. Like, it's not the feeling I was expecting. Why am I not overjoyed and, you know, excited and whatnot. And when I sort of finally had him in my arms, it was like this really surreal kind of like, who the hell are you and why are you here? And it was really not what I thought it was going to be. When did these feelings of ambivalence arise for you? For you? Was it that very moment? Pretty much immediately. It was just that I think the more that I kept thinking I should feel different, the more it sort of forced that... Um, you know, that con continued feeling and the more it was like, okay, you know, I've already failed. I've already left my child on his very first night on the planet and I've already not been able to meet his needs when I'm really unwell and how am I going to continue to do this as a parent? Like, I'm already a failure. And um, I struggled 
with breastfeeding in the hospital, I kept sort of asking for help. And I had a few nurses sort of showing up and I kept saying to them, you know, hey, things aren't going right. I'm not feeling right. And they kept going, oh, just persevere. It'll be fine. Um, and I don't know. I can't pinpoint exactly, you know, how long it was, but I just remember this particular day. I'd done another feed and I'd done another pump and I'd put him down for a sleep and I just said to my husband, I am, I can't do this. This is not what I thought it was going to be. This is, uh, can we just take him back to the hospital? Like, I'm not cut out for this. This is just so much harder. And he sort of tried to reassure me, but he kind of said the same thing. He's like, yep, like, this is not good. This is not what I thought as well. And he was, I mean, he was unbelievably supportive in everything. He was getting up with me and helping out and dealing with the lack of sleep and, um, you know, doing things by the book and listening to the midwives and being as confused as I was with all the instructions we were getting from different people. Um, so I think he was feeling it too. And, and we just thought, oh, my God, like, what have we got ourselves into? This is just, if we can just take him back to the hospital, then, you know, we can just pretend it never mm. happened. I hear you. How is that for you now, saying that out loud? Um, is it upsetting? Oh, I've said it. I've said it a lot. Um, I, no, I haven't said it a lot. It actually, it's upsetting, but it's, I think the more I say it, the more I feel a little bit empowered because I'm, I feel brave enough to be able to say it. And I think there's probably a lot more people out there that think it, but will never say it because they're terrified of saying it because someone might judge them. And exactly what I thought, you know, it was something that I actually haven't taken me three children. He's not, and my oldest is now nine and my youngest is two. And it's taken him to come along for me to be able to actually say it. I hadn't told anyone in, you know, seven or so years, apart from my husband. Becoming a mother and parenting is a transformation like no other and the start of a whole new identity. How did you handle that change? Oh, not well. Not well at all. Um, I've always, I'd always looked at, at you know, motherhood and, and seen it in this way that it becomes a woman's identity beyond anything else not for a good reason. It's just, you know, you look on the news and someone might be identified as a 37-year-old mother of three before they're identified as a teacher or a, you know, a friend or a sister or a wife or those sorts of things like that sort of... It's like the pinnacle, isn't it, sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's always like that. And it was something that I was so desperate to have at one point. You know, I looked at all these other people who, you know, got to celebrate Mother's Day or got to go home with their children or take them to soccer or whatever it was. And I was like, well, that's what I want. But I didn't realise that, you know, for a period of time it would become my entire identity. I'm no longer Emma. I'm, you know, Oliver's mum or Elliot's mum or Rory's mum. I'm... And that's how I still introduce myself now, you know. You, you go to school pickups and things and that's what you say instead of your actual name and who you are. And just living life was different. It wasn't just grabbing my wallet and walking out the door anymore. It was taking a whole human being and everything they need with me. And it changes everything, you know. You, you don't realise how easy a task is, 
you know, like going down to the supermarket until you have to take a child and all of their belongings with you as well. So true. I feel like, do you sometimes feel like if you strap all the kids in and then you close the car door and you walk around the other side to to put yourself in the car, I feel like that's like a mini holiday, like that one walk from <laughs> one side of the car to the other side when you can't hear them screaming at you. I'm like, wow, that's that's my sort of level of self-care today. <laughs> Everything you're saying is resonating a lot. Um, it's, you know, and I still talk about it to this day, there is still such a um, perspective on motherhood that involves you being selfless and being there for your children all the time and loving every minute, which I hate that phrase. I hate it. Honestly, I'm one of those people that I just, you go to a baby shower and you see the cards, you know, you know all, the, all the things that people write on of enjoy every minute. And I'm like, you don't have to because sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're going to be elbow deep in a nappy or they're not going to be stop crying or, you know, you're going to struggle with feeding and that's okay. It's all right not to enjoy that. That's that's Doesn't normal. mean you don't love your child. That's, that's right. No, yeah. And that is, I think that was a really big point for me was like, okay, I'm not enjoying this, therefore I must not love my uh. child. I'm not feeling those overwhelming feelings of love, therefore I must lack that ability to be able to love my child and love being a parent. So all of this has happened. What made you go back for number two? Um, I think we turned a corner. Um, I went and got help and, you know, linked up with a um, perinatal psychologist and an outpatient program um, locally to where we were we started to really settle into the groove of parenthood and and feel good about, you know, where we were. Um, And we thought, oh, okay, you know, it's probably going to take a while again. Um, So we might need to start thinking about trying again before it sort of drags on. So he was about 20 months old and uh, this time um, we met some other complications and... Uh, I started doing some testing with my doctor and she said to me she was concerned about some testing that I had that indicated uh, risk of uh, ovarian cancer. So um, I got in and had surgery and she said, look, uh, there isn't anything cancerous. She, she, She phoned me and said, no, there's nothing cancerous. I have cut out some abnormal growths, um, but we've also discovered that your um, fallopian tubes are completely blocked. So she said the only way you can conceive is to to do IVF. And so I, I had to give myself six months just to prepare myself mentally because I just thought, oh, I can't do this. This is so difficult. Um, so, yeah, we didn't actually start down the IVF path until... 2017, I think it was. So by this point, I think Oliver's three, almost four. Um, and we had to go through a lot. Um, so our second child finally came around. I think I found out I was pregnant with him April 2018. So it took us probably about seven or so months from when we started doing the IVF process to conceive, which is quite short a period of time, really, when you add it all together. (laughs) 
it felt like forever. So your second son arrived. How did you feel then at that point? You had a toddler to look after at the same time. You just had a cancer scare. You know, I went home thinking, okay, well, I'll just muddle through. It'll be fine. And I got gradually worse and worse and stopped eating and stopped sleeping and really not functioning. Um, And, yeah, I, I kind of was in this endless cycle of beating myself up for wanting this so badly and not enjoying it and not coping with it and feeling like I was failing being a parent of two children and, you know, questioning why I did it in the first place. And um, I was also worried about my husband because I thought, oh, he's going to go downhill again too and it's going to make it really hard and I was terrified for him. Um, yeah, so that that really made things rough the second time around. And, and, you know, the more I kept thinking about it, that I should just know what I'm doing now. Like, I've done this before. Why is this so hard? But five years down the track, it's such a different you world. Forget as well. You do forget. Um, yeah. You know, you forget so much. Yeah, like the human body does that on purpose, I think. <laughs> so you forget the hard stuff so you go back again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah oh, for wow. sure. Um, how did you then find the help that you needed after baby number two? Um, it took a while. I actually, um, I called Panda fairly soon, cried down the phone and, you know, talked about how I was feeling and felt like there was somebody there that could, you know, make me feel like I wasn't alone. You know, it's taken a lot for me to feel like I want to speak up because I've got that perspective now. But when I was back in it, there's no way I could have said that because I was so terrified. People were going to be like, but you wanted this. You wanted this so badly. Why don't you want it anymore? Why Why are you feeling like this? And that was my constant fear that, that somebody would say to me, well, you know, you wanted this so desperately. You tried so hard for it. Why don't you want it anymore? Despite Emma's ambivalent feelings around motherhood, she still felt like she wasn't done with two babies. There were some long, hard discussions with her husband about the toll that another round of IVF and navigating the postpartum period again would take on her mental health. And when her middle child had turned one, before they had really made a decision one way or the other, Emma got another surprise in the form of a positive pregnancy test. But it wasn't exactly a happy surprise, at least not at first. I actually went downhill again very, very quickly into, do I really want this? And I was terrified. I thought, oh, my God, what are we thinking? We can't do this again. I'm going to end back up in the mother and baby unit. All these things that are in my brain. And, and, you know, I had this idea in my head my husband was going to leave me because, you know, when he's not going to cope and we're not going to cope and all these horrible things are going to happen. And I spiralled very, very quickly um, to the point where I was Googling you know, terminations and how they worked and looking at other people's experiences on, you know, Facebook forums and all that sort of things, thinking, all right, maybe that's just the way to go. And, you know, after going through everything we'd gone through, it was the most bizarre place to be in. And I was embarrassed to say anything. And I remember going to my husband and saying, maybe this is what we should consider. And he sort of looked at me and went, okay, look, you know, I'm going to support you no matter what, but this might be your anxiety brain talking rather than your you know, logical thinking. 
Um, and it probably didn't, it probably took me until we had our first scan. I just, in the end, I sort of thought, I started, I was seeing my um, regular therapist and going through everything with her and, you know, finally made peace with it and, and realised that this time I had the opportunity to prepare properly, prepare myself. So not prepare for a baby, not, you know, worry about all the things I needed for them, but prepare myself for my own mental health and my own experiences and do everything I could to know that once I got into that postnatal period that I was going to have that support around me to keep me sort of more stable. Emma, firstly, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Termination is something that lots of people might not feel comfortable talking about openly, but it is a really important discussion to have. Secondly, you talked about looking after yourself for number three and putting yourself first in terms of your own self-care. What sort of things did you do to ensure that your mental health was kept in check for number three? So I was on a regular medication and that was managed very luckily. Again, I was in this outpatient program, so I was then on having regular phone appointments with my psychologist who was specialty in perinatal and she was fabulous. Um, and we made plans. So it was, you know, these are the things that could potentially happen once this new baby comes along. These are the things we can do to manage it. Yeah, it was just such a different experience, so different. And it, and it just was, I, I went through now what I know to be a, again, in quotes, you know, normal postnatal period where I felt okay and I managed it and I felt proud of myself for managing it and I finally knew what it was like to not, you know, go through that that spiral again. And, you know, I, I constantly say like this, but my third came along to show me that I could do it without postnatal depression, without anxiety, without all of the challenges that I went through with my first two and I could actually really heal. Emma made it through those feelings of parental ambivalence with her three boys. And it's a term that seems like it's thrown around quite a bit. But what does it really mean? Dr Sophie Brock is a motherhood studies sociologist and a mum. She gets it. And she's here to clear that up. Uh, What it is getting at is us being able to feel multiple different feelings that seemingly compete with each other at the same time. So we're able to feel things that are seemingly in conflict and don't really make sense in using inverted commas, doesn't make sense, but we feel that way anyway. Um, And so it's about giving us a language and actually permission to embrace and get curious about the range of different feelings we experience as parents. Right. So am I fair to say that when it comes to parenting, um, it might be a case that you love, you absolutely love being a parent and you feel so grateful that you're able to be a mother and all the wonderful things that come with that. But at the same time, you can actually hate it a lot of the time and find it really frustrating and draining and all sorts of issues pop up like loss of identity, et cetera. Is that, is that what we're kind of talking about? Yeah, we are. You can feel that sense of, I don't want to be apart from my baby for a minute. I love every moment. This is the best. And 
oh my gosh, get me out of this house, get them away from me. And there's all of those, and we can get into this a little bit more, I'm sure, in our conversation, but we can also be talking about different things when talking about ambivalence. Like, am I feeling ambivalent about my children and my relationship to them, about my role as a parent, as a mother? So there's, you know, there's different ways we can actually be talking about what it means to experience ambivalence. And yeah, it, it can be seen in a broad way, which I think gives us a lot of permission to explore our feelings. But we're living within a culture that tells us a particular story around what it means to be a good parent. And that can make it really hard for us to grapple with the realities of what it's actually like versus how we've fantasized about it. And the reasons for that and where that has come about comes from, you know, something that would take a lot longer for us to talk about in this podcast. But as a little bit of a snapshot, it looks different culture to culture, country to country and time period. And so the period mothers are existing in right now, they are intensely overwhelmed with a lot of pressure, uh, pressures and burdens that come from our economic situation, that come from racial disparities, that come from socioeconomic challenge. Uh, all sorts of different things conflate to make it really hard to be a modern mother. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's so important we start having these conversations about the realities of what it looks like for many of us. So that's the barriers I'm facing when I don't have maternity leave. That's the conflict I'm feeling when I have to try and pick up my kid from daycare right before they shut and I have to miss a meeting at work, which I really needed to get if I want to go for that promotion next year. So all of the structural barriers that actually shape our individual lives. Now, we all talk about how much our lives have changed after having kids, but it's also how we change as people um, and how the outside world sees parents differently. What do feelings of regret or ambivalence have to do with our identity? Already, when we get to the topic of who am I, that's kind of an existential question. Part of what we are kind of told from our culture is that in order to be a successful, well-rounded human adult who's got their stuff together, right, you, you have the house, you have a partner, you have a successful career and you have a family. So we can idealize that. And there's, you know, Lots that we could pull apart from that. But essentially, if we're told that having children is how we become more of ourselves, that's how we become our full selves. That's the thing that we tick off the list. And then we're told that to be a good mum, you're selfless. You're less of yourself. So we're actually stuck in this bit of a bind specifically for mums. And it, this is different for mums and dads uh, and, and people who are in different types of parenting ar arrangements. Because there can be this heightened pressure that actually this is supposed to be the happiest years of my life when I'm supposed to have had it figured out. And so there can be this immense pressure that we feel and that we place on ourselves. And then we can feel like the world as we knew it has completely reoriented. And we go through this process called matrescence. It's a developmental rite of passage and it continues and we have to figure out who am I now, now that I am also a mother, now that I am also a parent. And it can be really disorienting. Yeah, definitely disorientating for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's so ironic, isn't it, that you're told that you're going to be, it, it's everything if you become a mother and um, yeah, you really will find yourself. But I don't know about a lot of other people, but for me, yeah, I definitely felt like I lost myself when I had children and lost the identity that I, I had once before. And yeah, only just now, like my eldest is nearly six, am I starting to feel like I'm gaining my sense of self back and actually doing something for myself. But it's, yeah, I definitely relate to that. 
Yeah, it's it's really common. And I mean, not everybody experiences this in the same way. So a lot of mothers do feel that loss of self and that sense of especially women who either have fertility challenges or become a mother later once they've kind of established their career because you can feel like you've got quite a solid sense of knowing who you are and then that's kind of the rug is pulled out from underneath you. Um, and for other mothers, it can not look like that. For other mothers, they can feel as though they've really found themselves through their mothering and they have connected with parts of themselves that they didn't know existed. And and also talking about ambivalence, it can look like both. You can feel as though you have lost parts of yourself and you can feel as though you've grown in ways that make you feel more you than ever before. So yeah, it can be both. What would you say to parents? Uh, is there a way that they can you sort of feel at ease with this um, on those really, really hard days? Yeah, well, the first thing that I would say is that we weren't designed to mother this way. So the reason why so many of us are struggling in these arrangements is because we're meant to struggle in them. I mean, this is not how we were meant to raise children in environments, disconnected from community, disconnected from extended family, where a mother is at home in four walls all day with a toddler and a baby. I mean, that that's ex- extremely difficult. Um, So I think that if we're struggling with that, it's not because we necessarily are inadequate or don't have enough tools or don't have enough patience or just aren't enough. Well, we're struggling with that because anybody would struggle with that. That's really hard. And it can also be really lonely. So what are some practical steps you can take as a new parent to get through those hard days? Think about what were the rules of good motherhood that you unknowingly took on and that you may still hold in your head. And an exercise you can do is to write down all of these rules. Like a perfect mum is, what does she look like? What is she wearing? How does she feel? How old is she? How was her experience in becoming a mother? What does she do for work or not? And then you go through and you're like, hang on a second, this snapshot is a lot of pressure. Do I actually believe that? What things here do I want to let go of? And what things are actually important as part of my values? experiences of ambivalence or of regret or of questioning, is this the life that I want to live? Is this the life that I want to lead? And they can be really normal questions. Questions also that can sometimes indicate you might need a bit more support. So to reach out for that support, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not alone. None of us were meant to do this alone. Emma, if there's anyone who's been listening to this, to your story and to Dr. Brock's advice, and thinking, that sounds a little bit like me, what would you say to them? You will be okay, but it takes work and it takes investing in yourself, and that's not a bad thing. Um, There is another side to everything that you are going through. You can be the best parent you can be by making sure that you look after yourself. You don't have to enjoy every minute of it. There's nothing wrong in that. You know, there's going to be points in time where you're going to hate it and just think this is awful and I don't want to be here. But you get through those parts too. Emma, what is the most joyful part of parenting for you? Oh, this one's actually going to make me a bit teary thinking about it. I've constantly said about parenting, my most favourite part is seeing the world through their eyes. I love, I think that's just, in any child, I think it's what it's always, I've always loved about children in general, is to just watch them take in the world. 
it's always been that, just watching them grow, watching them learn and watching them take in the world around them and seeing how they react to it. Survive and Thrive is a podcast from Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, an accredited mental health service. You'll find all the links and information you need in the episode notes, wherever you're listening. But just a reminder, if you are a new or expecting parent, you can call Panda's free national helpline from Monday to Saturday on 1300 726 306. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in a life-threatening emergency, call triple zero. The experts featured on this Survive and Thrive podcast are not Panda clinicians, but valued partners. Any opinions and advice is their own and not representing Panda. Panda recognises the individual and collective contributions of people with a lived or living experience of mental health issues, their families, loved ones and supporters. Every story informs how we care for people and their community. Survive and Thrive is produced by Deadset Studios for Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. Don't forget there are lots more episodes in your podcast feed, so hit follow in your favourite podcast app.